Tech Fighter Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 530 for the 12th of February, 2017. This week, Affinity Photo has been around for a while on the Mac OS, but it's new to Windows. We'll take a look at the features and one important shortcoming. Frustrations abound when a hard drive appears to be failing, but no symptoms can be found. In short circuits, Google is planning to do something that should have been done long ago to shut down malicious websites. An issue that shouldn't be even slightly political is being made to seem political as the big internet service providers eye big profits. In spare parts, only on the website, finding legitimate news can be a challenge, but there are many reliable sources on the internet, and Forbes magazine has some suggestions. A startup company wants restaurants to get rid of their laminated floor plans and grease pencils because they say there's a better way to seat people. Affinity Photo is a new product from a company that used to be known as Serif. The company still is Serif, and the old Serif applications are still available, but the development effort is now focused on the Affinity products. Previously available for Mac users, they now have corresponding Windows versions. For the photo product, the interface is immediately both reassuringly familiar and startlingly different. Familiar-looking tools appear on the left side of the workspace, context-sensitive functions appear near the top of the screen, and a space for adjustments is on the right. But you'll also find five mysterious icons at the top left of the screen. These control the application's persona. From left to right, the personas start with photo. That's where you'll find the usual photo editing tools, fills, brushes, blur, text, things like that. It is the default persona if you open a standard image file such as a JPEG. Next is Liquify. This persona makes it possible to change an image's perspective or to warp it. Third in line is Develop. That's the one you'll get if you open a raw image, but it can also be used to modify JPEG images. Many of the tools are similar to what you would expect to find in an application such as Adobe Lightroom. Tone mapping is next to last. This persona is used to create high dynamic range images if you have multiple images, or to add HDR-like effects to a single RAW or JPEG image. And number five, export. Possibly the most remarkable of the personas, this one makes it possible to export multiple versions of the same image simultaneously. Affinity Photo offers no import function, I'll explain that in greater detail in a moment. So the user needs to copy images from the camera to the computer's hard drive. More significantly, unlike applications that store image modifications either in an associated database or in sidecar files, Affinity Photo does neither. As a result, performing non-destructive editing requires that the user open the file and then immediately save it in the proprietary Affinity Photo format. That one does save non-destructive editing information, but it also effectively doubles the storage required for files that have been edited. 
I've also seen no function that corresponds to Lightroom's ability to make a virtual copy of an image. One of the images you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website this week is a picture of TechBiter Worldwide headquarters. And you'll note the familiar tools along the left side of the screen, adjustments on the right, and the context-sensitive section at the top. And, of course, it's that mysterious persona section that might catch your eye. The image I was working with was just a single raw image. I wanted to see what high dynamic range processing would be able to do for it. The result, with no intervention on my part, I thought was excellent. Then I moved on and selected the dynamic option in the HDR panel. That created an image with some of the more garish attributes that are often associated with HDR images. In fact, it is some of the program's more dramatic effects that may appeal to a lot of users. But that's not to suggest that the basic features are deficient in any way. They're not. Adjustment layers ensure that changes are non-destructive. A feature called in-painting works a lot like content-aware fill. And undo information can be saved with the image so that users can return to an image and delete previously made changes to restore previous version. Check out my final version of the TechBiter Worldwide Headquarters picture on the website. It's an example of some of the more dramatic effects layered onto a single image. These aren't effects you'd want to use routinely, but when you want to communicate a certain point, they can be very handy. In this case, the illustration was intended to spoof a requirement by a company's HR department that employees who work at home would be required to submit a photo to prove that their workspace at home is ergonomic. Learning to use a new application can be a challenge, and Affinity addresses that with a remarkable set of videos. They've created videos that introduce the application available on Vimeo or YouTube, more than 175 videos in 19 project categories, cover everything from the basics, opening and saving, layers adjustments, filters, exporting, things like that, to the program's most advanced features, filters, high dynamic range, live editing, and focus merging, and of course everything in between. Most of the videos are 10 minutes or less in length and clearly explain how a specific feature works. But there is one key missing feature. The most significant missing feature in Affinity Photo is a way to organize images and view thumbnails. Adobe Lightroom handles this task natively. Photoshop uses Bridge. Affinity, however, depends on the operating system or a third-party organizer. Google no longer offers Picasa, but anyone who has downloaded it previously will still be able to install it. That said, Picasa is an orphan and won't see any updates, so it's probably better to choose something else. Fortunately, there are several applications, and there are reports that Affinity has a digital asset manager in development. If you're using Picasa now, I would avoid the temptation to switch to Google Photos. That might seem like the obvious choice, but there are lots of disadvantages to it. And there are better choices. Here are just three. XNView MP. It's intended to be a media browser, so it can display thumbnail images of the photos you've copied to the computer's hard drive. Now, this is a far cry from Lightroom's import function. It is able to work with most raw file formats, though. View also displays thumbnail views. Right-clicking one of them provides an option to open with Affinity Photo, but it needs plugins to be able to deal with most raw files. 
And then there's Fast Stone Image Viewer. That's another handy organizer that's able to deal with at least some of the raw formats. So what I see here is a program with an enormous amount of potential. The lack of an image management function is a significant liability, but once that's been resolved, the future for Affinity Photo is bright indeed. Bottom line, four cats, Affinity Photo brings a new look to photo editing. I'm fascinated by where Affinity is going with its new series of applications, photo design and a forthcoming publisher page layout program. The most serious shortcoming, as I keep harping on, is the lack of image management. And I suspect that professionals will avoid the application until an integrated image manager is available. This is not subscription-based software, and the price is surprisingly modest for an application with the feature set offered and all of those instructional online videos. With an image management component, Affinity Photo would easily earn five cats instead of four. You'll find additional details on the Affinity Photo website. And there's a link, of course, from the TechBiter Worldwide website. My wife's notebook computer started having some problems recently. The Firefox settings file was damaged and I had to create a new instance of Firefox. The boot process was taking far too long, sometimes half an hour. Sometimes it just failed. Occasional blue screen errors didn't point directly to the disk, so I started running some diagnostics. And then the image on the screen went crazy. Well, first I thought the video subsystem had failed, or maybe the screen had gone bad. But the screen seemed okay, and when I grabbed a screenshot and sent it to another computer, everything looked just fine. At that point, I suspected the cable. Laptop computers have a cable that runs between the main board and the bottom part of the computer and the screen, so I thought maybe it had become loose or had failed. Well, the good folks at TCR Computers in Pickerington confirmed that it was the cable, ordered a new one, and installed it. It cost about $100. Then it was time to continue the analysis to see what problems the computer might have. When I ran Crystal Disk Info on it, it sounded a siren and showed an indicator from the smart monitor that said the hard drive was about to fail. Well, that explained the disk corruption, the slow boot time, and other general odd behavior. So I ordered a replacement disk. When it arrived, I used Macrium Reflect to clone the failing drive to the new drive, at least I tried to. That process failed about halfway through. A second attempt produced the same result. Some additional research suggested that all commercial cloning products may fail if the source disk has bad sectors. I found a recommendation for a Linux-based application called CloneZilla. After downloading the ISO file, I used it to create a bootable CD, started the computer with it. And about halfway through the process of cloning the drive with CloneZilla, it encountered the same error, and then switched to what looked like a recovery mode. When that process completed, I installed the drive, but expected little in the way of success. And that's exactly what I got. The boot process started, Windows switched to the automatic repair mode, and said it was going to try to repair disk errors. While that was happening, I placed the old drive in a USB case and connected it to the main computer where I could run check disk on it with the fix option. As it turned out, the new drive didn't have enough of the old files to perform a recovery function. 
but I had run check disk on the old drive with the fix function enabled, so I reinstalled it and tried once again to clone, this time with Macrium Reflect. At that point, I was beginning to feel the more appropriate course of action would simply be to toss the computer in the trash and buy a new one. It was possible, but doubtful, that the new drive had some problems, because the clone process always ended with what I had assumed to be an erroneous message about corruption on the target. So I cloned another computer's hard drive to the new drive. No problem. So the new drive is fine. Whatever the problem is, it is the source drive. The check disk with the fix function revealed no damaged areas, and check disk with both the R and F switches enabled, completed, apparently, without finding anything. The disk drive had a Samsung badge, but Seagate took over that business unit more than five years ago, so I thought maybe Seagate's utility called C-Tools would provide some additional guidance. Seagate's website had links to download the utility, but the links simply went to documentation or to pages that no longer exist. Thanks, Seagate. I eventually found a copy at CNET, but it was from 2012, and eventually I located the current version, which is dated 2015, at Major Geeks and Softpedia. I downloaded it, I ran it, I selected Fix Everything, the test ran to 97% completion, installed. So I repeated some of the additional tests and ran a few more. Check disk F had no problems, check disk RF, no problems, defrag turned out not to be needed, C tools, of course, had hung at 97%, but the C tools smart test reported OK. I tried SFC Scan Now. That's a utility that examines Windows files and looks for corruption. It reported no errors. I opened the control panel and selected Troubleshoot. No problems reported there. I installed the Lenovo Service Bridge. It is a Lenovo computer, after all. But that requires TVSU, which made me go do some research to find out what is TVSU. Well, TVSU is the Think Vantage System Update. So I ran the service bridge with TVSU installed, and they found no problems. Well, I made one more attempt to clone the drive. This time it got all the way to 66%. Hey, we're making progress here, but then clone failed, read failed, 13 permission denied, 32. That was not unexpected. For now, the computer is back in service, and we're just keeping an eye on it. As with many things in life, computer problems don't always come with nice, clear answers. In short circuits, Google says it's going to drop the big hammer on bad actors. Nearly any website can be infected with malware. When that happens, and Google notices, search results can display a warning. Google also notifies the site owner. What they've seen, though, are sites that clean up for long enough to get the warning removed and then suddenly become infected again. As a result, Google has created a new classification in its safe browsing application. It is called Repeat Offenders. It means exactly what it says. If your site finds itself on that list, the warning will remain for 30 days and you have no recourse whatsoever. Google normally allows site owners to request that the site be re-examined. That won't happen for a month if you're a repeat offender. And it's not just Google, though, because both Safari and Firefox use Google's safe browsing functions to warn users about rogue sites, specifically in the form of a full-page warning 
about the site being deceptive. If someone manages to slip malware onto your site, well, you can investigate, eliminate the threat, and ask Google for a new review. Normally, that happens pretty quickly, and the site is able to return to operation promptly. But Google says some sites seem to clean up just long enough to get an all-clear rating and then return to spreading malware or phishing schemes. Now, if it was up to me, a repeat offender site would have one additional chance, and after that, the warning would be permanent and unremovable forever. Google's security blog says that some websites stop harming users until warnings are removed, then revert to harmful activity. You'll find a link to that security blog on the TechBiter Worldwide website. The goal is not to brand hacked sites as repeat offenders, but only to take action against those sites where behavior seems to be intentional. Only sites that purposefully post harmful content will be subject to the policy, according to the blog. This is a step in the right direction. If you're listening to the podcast or you sometimes visit the TechBiter Worldwide website, you have an internet connection. So would it be reasonable for me to assume that you would like the best and the fastest connection possible? Would it also be reasonable for me to assume that you want to be able to experience good performance from any website that you choose to open in your browser? And might I also assume that you would oppose actions by your Internet service provider to degrade service from any content provider not owned by the Internet service provider? Well, if all of those are true, then you want net neutrality. And I can't imagine anybody who wants slower service, blocked sites, and higher prices. That's what net neutrality is all about. And yet some are trying to position net neutrality as a liberal hoax that conservatives should resist. It is not political. It is about profits. Be skeptical, ask questions, and follow the money. The big Internet service providers want to maximize their profits. They can do that by blocking access to sites they don't own or making the services so slow that they're unreliable. Alternatively, they can then charge fees for those services that they don't own. For example, let's consider Netflix. Netflix streams content via the Internet. They pay a lot for big pipes to deliver that content to the Internet. You pay Netflix a monthly subscription fee, and you also pay an Internet service provider's monthly bill. Everybody gets paid. Everybody's happy, right? But what if the Internet service provider decides that Netflix should pay a premium to deliver content to the ISP's subscribers? Keep in mind, you're already paying the ISP for the service you use, but now the ISP wants to collect a toll from the content providers. What do you think will happen to the monthly fee you pay Netflix? Clearly, it would increase. So then you'll be paying more for exactly the same service you had previously. You'll be paying the ISP twice, once directly and once via Netflix. But maybe you don't care about Netflix. It is, after all, just an example I'm using here. And chances are probably pretty good that you enjoy several Internet sources that you'd miss if they went away. These are sites perhaps like TechBiter Worldwide and the hundreds of thousands of similar small websites. TechBiter Worldwide has no advertisements. The only income the site receives is from donations made by those who read the website or listen to the podcast. So the annual registration fee comes out of my pocket. 
The monthly hosting fee comes out of my pocket. The cost for any additional features on the website come out of my pocket. If the big ISPs tell me that I have to pay so that you can view the site or listen to the podcast, well, that'll be the end of it, and the end of hundreds of thousands of websites, podcasts, and other sources of information and entertainment. So again, why is this a political issue? Liberals should be in favor of net neutrality. Conservatives should also be in favor of net neutrality. Everyone who uses the Internet should be in favor of net neutrality. It is not political. It is economic. And it's the Internet service providers who are doing everything they can to make it seem political. And we'll make spare parts seem like it's on the website, because actually it is on the website, and that's the only place it is. This week, finding legitimate news can be a challenge, but there are many reliable sources on the Internet. Forbes magazine has some great suggestions. And a startup company wants restaurants to get rid of their laminated floor plans and grease pencils. That's because they say there's a better way to seat people. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.